This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. We leverage the power of our people and our products to improve the state of the planet together with our customers. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability. This episode is sponsored by Shell. There is an urgent need to tackle climate change, and we are determined to play our part. Learn more about Shell's climate ambition at shell.us forward slash net zero ambition. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the confusing world of carbon offsets, the energy policy wish list for President Biden, what you need to know about intersectional environmentalism, and in honor of World Soil Day, a new biodiversity benchmark for textiles. We're getting down and dirty this week on 350. It's December 4th, 2020. We're on the home stretch of this weird year. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, and already in the holiday spirit, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How do you know I'm in the holiday spirit? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's it's palpable even, yeah. even across the miles. I just know you and I know uh, what it's like in uh, New Jersey these days, and uh, I just... It's just a guess. How, how was it out there? I was recording Christmas carols and holiday carols a couple days ago with my quartet. See? Uh, yep. Yes, you were this right. This is your 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 acapella group. It is my acapella group for a, we, a long, we, long time. Yeah, we we. This is actually my quartet. I I was in a chorus too. That's a whole nother ball of wax. But my quartet has has, has traditionally gone out and caroled at this time of year. Uh, people will like pay us to go to their friends' houses and just basically flash mob them with a carol <laughs> you know, to suddenly appear. Cool. Um, but uh, not happening this year. Um, so yeah, we're trying to figure out ways of, of capturing the spirit uh, in audio <laughs> and sharing that with our friends. Um, it, it did flurry here this week here in, in, uh, in New Jersey. So yes, it's finally look, beginning to look a lot like Etc. Yep. Well, here's yeah. one way we can share that is that I, I will now say in front of the entire world of Green Biz 350 listeners, let's use some of that in an upcoming uh, episode later this month, maybe our year end episode, uh, as some uh, just a little filler music. I think that would be a totally appropriate thing to do. But but we will, as they say, take that offline. Uh, but let's talk about this week. We had a big announcement this week. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we did. Very excited that uh, we officially launched or announced the launch of, of GreenFin 21, mm-hmm. which will uh, next year become the fourth event uh, brand in our annual parade of events after Green Biz in February, Circularity in May, and Verge in October. Uh, Greenfin in in April, April 13th and 14th, virtual for 2021. And uh, 
hopefully not after that. Um, this is a, a, a natural evolution of the Green Fin Summits we have held in uh, 2019 and 2020 alongside our Green Biz event in Phoenix, now spun off into its own two-day event. Uh, looking at the, the intersection of sustainable finance, uh, the, the new products and services, green bonds and sustainability linked loans, with the whole exploding world of ESG, environmental, social and governance reporting and investing, uh, among big institutional investors. And, and, and what I like about it, then I'll shut up, but <laughs> this is the way, the purpose of this is to bring together, uh, four big communities, uh, the corporate, uh, reporters, the, the corporates, the, not just the sustainability folks, but the corporate finance and investor relations people, along with the institutional investors, asset owners, asset managers, and, and, and so on, along with the ratings and rankings organizations, the MSCIs and Fitches and S&Ps, uh, and the financial institutions, uh, the, the big banks mostly that uh, are now offering these all these new products and services. They don't come together. There's conferences for there's, you know, a token few of each, uh, but this is a real way to come together and learn how to speak the same language because mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. they don't. And so yeah. that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, I'm excited too because for the timing because there's so much going on. It just feels like... Um, this year has only become, 2020 being the weird year it has been, but has been a pivotal year for this, these things, these, these topics, and um, not just the reporting. I mean, we've seen uh, organizations merge, you know, SASB, other organizations coming together to, to harmonize their, their processes. Um, we've seen just incredible action on the part of banks, you know, saying that they're not going to, for example, I, th I think Bank of America this week was the last holdout that said they would not fund uh, oil drilling in the Arctic, you know, and and, and, and sort of exploration in the Arctic, um, along with all of the other big five or six uh, U.S. banks. Um, it's just, there's just, it feels like a great moment to be doing this. And I love the uh, the topics. It's, it's money makes the world go round. And um, clearly, the time is right, and there's just so much happening, such a rich, rich array of, uh, of uh, things that we're going to be talking about. So kudos to, I guess, us. <laughs> I'm, I'm complimenting <laughs> us for, for doing this, but I'm, ex I'm super excited about Why it. Not? <laughs> Why not? Credit where credit is due. Exactly. The one thing I will say, though, is that this uh, is an invitation-only event. We want to keep the right mix of those four audiences, again, the corporates, institution, institutional investors, ratings and rankings groups, and, uh, and financial institutions in the room. Uh, you can uh, request an invitation. Uh, you go to greenbiz.com slash events slash greenfin21, and, uh, and we'll link to that, of course, on the website. But uh, you can go and request an invitation at any time. Mm -hmm. So let's... While you're thinking about requesting the invitation, let's go back and look at the Week in Review. We have two monster stories to talk about this week. In the quest for carbon offsets, almost anything goes. We have a Green Biz 101 primer, if, if you will, on carbon offset markets. Um, it has become such a huge topic this year, one of the most popular tracks at our Verge 20 event, 
was the buyer's guide sessions that we had um, planned on on the various forest offsets versus uh, you know those associated with regenerative agriculture and, and so forth and other projects. But uh, our our contributor Jesse Klein has done a great piece, um, kind of basically breaking down the different types of um, offsets that are out there in the market right now. Um, based also just you know pressing reset, you know, is, these are all voluntary offsets that we're talking about at this time, but what, what will happen in the future, we don't know under the new administration, um, you know, and so she really breaks it down and, and provides a, a, basically one of the things that, one of the sections that I really appreciated was the, the terms, right? So there's all these terms that fly out, additionality, permanence, buffer pools, leakage, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and she does a great job of deciphering what these mean and 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 putting them into a layperson's terms for those neophytes and not so neophytes that are considering what to do with their strategy in 2021 and beyond. And I, one of the reasons for the timing of this piece is just, frankly, because the focus on carbon removal has become much more heightened this year, especially attached to these net zero commitments that we're seeing. So very timely topic, very uh, deep and uh, dense topic as well. So Joel, you've been following this much longer than I have, and I know you did quite a few edits on this piece, particular piece. What really jumped out for you? Well, uh, first of all, to add to the context, yeah, you, you, you mentioned net zero. To me, that is the the number one reason that this piece is so important and so relevant. As everybody knows, this past year, year and a half, couple of years, whenever, but certainly in 2020, net zero became a thing. So many companies, cities, countries, uh, sectors, industries have made commitments to net zero carbon emissions. So that's not zero emissions. That's net zero, which means that they will have emissions and they're going to have to offset those emissions to get to net zero. So carbon offsets are going to become an increasingly bigger and bigger part of what companies are doing uh, on their sustainability uh, in their sustainability programs. This is these have been around for a long, long time, probably 25 years now. They used to be able to just, you know, buy, pay write a check and get some absolution. Offsets rightfully, you know, got a bad name because it it wasn't about changing anything except writing a check. It, a lot of the offsets really weren't additional, meaning that they would have happened anyway. You're just paying someone to do something that would have happened anyway, so not really making a difference. Uh, they weren't uh, things that were durable, uh, that uh, things that would actually remove carbon for uh, for decades, if not centuries, and and. And so now we're getting to the point finally where there's a lot more rigor uh, and a lot bigger organizations that are, are getting involved with this. And so, um, but the field is still incredibly complex mm -hmm. as, as Jesse made very clear here. Um, and it's still the wild west where uh, every, pretty much anybody can say anything in, in terms of marketing claims um, and there's no real definitions. There's no there, no, there, there are standards, but, but they're voluntary standards. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I really appreciate this piece that she did a lot and lot of legwork on this to really break it down in the ways that, um, that they need to be. And as you said, yeah, it's a very long piece, uh, but it is, 
if anybody is in this space, if, if offsets either are or will be a growing part of, of your company or your organization's uh, uh, climate strategy, uh, this is, as they say, a must read. But let's move over to another must read because this is an equally important topic uh, in a, almost a whole other vein. Uh, and it comes from our, our, our longtime contributor, uh, Doug Woodring, uh, based in Hong Kong, and he's the founder and managing director of the Ocean Recovery Alliance, and he runs the plasticity forums that uh, are now taking place in various countries. Um, and he co-wrote this with uh, Trish Hyde, who's written for us before. Uh, she's the founder of, of two organizations, one called the Plastics Circle and something called PlastX. They wrote a piece that's called uh, Recycled Plastic. There's market demand, but where's the supply? And this is such a critical question uh, because the supply demand imbalance, you know, everybody wants recycled plastic, but there's not enough, not enough of it. Why is that? Usually demand uh, creates supply and they break this down into, into what's going on and, and how do we get to that market equilibrium? Yeah. And for me, one of the big takeaways was the how well we 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 talk we actually this year particularly you brought it up before with net zero you have to watch the nomenclature you have to watch what people are really saying recycled plastic versus recyclable plastic and what what are companies committing to what are brands committing to when they when they when they're talking about their packaging cuz a lot a lot of this has to do with packaging i mean packaging there's products it's a whole different topic but but really when it comes down to it most of the focus here is on packaging um, and i think that what one of the things that we've seen it's kind of like this uh, i don't know standoff if you will the, the companies want to use more, but uh, that the supply isn't there. Is it because there isn't policy? Is it because of the, the export issues? I think a lot of, I think part of it has to do with the fact that people don't know quite how to measure it. And I think that's part of the issue as well. So, I mean, it, it's a, uh, the oil price factor, I think was one thing that came in this year, but it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be kind of a, almost a smoke signal in some ways. So there's like this, this, this systemic problem here that is keeping people from, from actually moving forward. I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled by it myself. I guess, you know, maybe it's just the infrastructure problem. Who knows? I mean, so many different factors are involved here. Yeah. Cry for help perhaps. But uh, just to tie this back to the other story, uh, there are now net zero plastic commitments that companies are making. We will uh, not right. uh, contribute <laughs> any additional additional plastic into the waste stream. That means we will have some waste, but but we will then have plastic offsets. Uh, and so there, we're starting to see some of those where companies are committing. And I, I don't know how these work. I don't know whether how how big this is. I suspect uh, it's it's going to get bigger where companies are committing to offset their plastic waste by removing waste elsewhere or causing waste to be removed elsewhere in the waste stream. So sadly, this is a topic that's uh, going to get confusinger and confusinger as we go along. Yeah, I mean. Just one final thought for me, I think one of the other takeaways for me is to watch the local action um, on this because as this stuff moves around, it gets harder to deal with. And, and there's some, is it the Basel amendments um, 
coming into play next year that are going to make it even tougher from country to country. So I think to, to get progress on this, we're going to really need to focus, um, we, I, I'm speaking from a U.S. perspective right now, are going to need to focus on what can happen in specific regions and can companies come together and affect certain local markets in, in a way where maybe they can address this supply problem and really make investments in infrastructure. It's going to take that kind of really focused regional local action, I think, to, to make this uh, to move forward in, in 2021. Addressing climate change is a top priority of President-elect Joe Biden. Although it's still unclear how much support he'll get from Congress, the Biden-Harris administration has promised that the U.S. will rejoin the Paris Agreement, and it is mulling plans that are sure to have an impact on everything from zero emissions transportation to regenerative agriculture. When it comes to carbon removal, however, it's clear that there's a foundational gap, and that's quotes, between the economic and research policies we need to support massive emissions reductions and the current reality. That's the view of nonprofit advocacy group Carbon 180, which has published recommendations for steps that the White House should take within the first 30 days, along with priorities for the first 100 days for various federal agencies. Joining me on GreenBiz 350 to discuss Carbon 180's transition framework is Gianna Amador, co-founder and managing director of Carbon 180. Hey, Gianna, how are you? Hi, Heather. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We'll, we'll focus on your ideas for President-elect Biden in a moment, but I'd like to start with some context. There has been some progress during the Trump administration, including the passage of the 450Q tax credit for carbon capture projects and the allocation of some research funding for removal solutions. So what policies are in place now? We've seen a you know, tremendous amount of momentum around carbon removal solutions from both federal and state governments over the last five years. Really, I think the biggest mark of improvement has really been around this research funding that you mentioned. So when Carbon 180 was first started in 2015, um, we were at about $100,000 of research funding ever ad allocated to negative emissions technologies. In FY20, we saw that grow and increase to $68 million. And just in this last year in the House Appropriations Committee, we saw over $230 million allocated to carbon removal solutions. So what we're seeing is this growing interest and increase in funding for these technologies from Congress. And I think we see that momentum growing in other spaces as well. For example, in the last farm bill, we saw a number of changes around soil health and soil carbon that would help drive the adoption of these practices. So we really see sort of this growing interest from Congress and the early signals from the Biden-Harris administration that they're going to go big on climate as a reason for optimism that will continue to see that momentum and transformational change happen around carbon removal. Yeah, and I, I love that you brought those examples up because that happened in a very partisan administration. And, and we're, we're going to have that in, in the future as well. But I think the fact is that there are, is bipartisan support for many of these ideas. Um, and I, I wish we could talk about all of them, <laughs> but we need a whole hour for that. Um, one of the, one of the, the ideas and, 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 and suggestions that I'm really intrigued by is the idea of a carbon shot innovation program, obviously playing off moonshot, earthshot, the, the other shots that we've seen out there. 
So what does Carbon 180 have in mind for that? How much, uh, how might such a program cross different sectors of the economy? The goal for the carbon shot is really to bring down the cost of robustly verified carbon removal to less than $100 per ton of CO2 by 2025. And that is really going to take a cross-agency, cross-sector mobilization from the federal government, similar to what we've seen for other technologies like solar and wind. But I really see because of the breadth of carbon removal solutions, we expect the carbon shot to be a little bit more expansive and really embedded in a the whole sort of federal research apparatus. So I think a major goal around the carbon shot would be for the government to commit $10 billion in research funding for carbon removal solutions over the next decade, and to also implement a number of interagency coordination initiatives to really make sure that we're transferring lessons across the carbon removal solutions, that we're not being duplicative with our efforts, and are really able to scale up these solutions quickly. This is actually something we've seen Congress have a lot of interest in through a piece of legislation that is now both bipartisan and bicameral called the CREATE Act. And so we see this carbon shot idea really building off some of the mandates that car, uh, that Congress is starting to put into place and really scale up that ambition over the next decade. Why is that $100 per ton mark such an important figure? Yeah, I think especially around the, the tech-based carbon removal solutions, we really see cost as a major barrier to deployment today. So we want to continue to bring down the technology cost, both through uh, technology learning and economies of scale to get the price of particularly, I think, direct air capture below $100 per ton of CO2. That's what we really think is going to be necessary to deploy these solutions on the scale that's needed to fight climate change. I'll also mention that we really consider the land sector solutions in this carbon shot as well. And while those solutions are much cheaper today, they sort of range between the like 10 to $30 per ton range. Um, there's still a lot of work that needs to happen around reducing transaction costs around implementation, monitoring, reporting, and verification, as well as making sure that the carbon that's being stored in these natural ecosystems is permanent. And so we would love to see the federal research capacity scale up around those solutions as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you did mention a couple agencies a moment ago. What agencies will be particularly important for the U.S. carbon removal agenda, and what would you like to see them do? Like I mentioned, I think it's going to be really important for carbon removal and climate to be embedded across all of the agencies. However, the ones that are sort of the highest priorities in our transition book and from our perspective are going to be the USDA, the Department of Energy, as well as some of the offices within the Executive Office of the President, like OSTP, um, which is the Office of Technology, Science, and Policy, as well as the Council on Environmental Quality. So. Really, I think USDA and DOE are primed to scale up sort of their specific solution sets around nature and land-based solutions, respectively. And the executive office of the president can really help set that leadership, that vision, as well as some of the important considerations around environmental justice and accountability for these solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I, wanna, I did want to ask about that. So what's the potential in economic impact of these policies? And how can we be sure that considerations for equity and environmental justice are embedded in them? Absolutely. Really, I think the 
the goal for scaling up these carbon removal solutions is to not only deploy them for their climate impacts, but to really understand how do we build the industries of the future around all of the carbon removal solutions. So when farmers are adopting practices that store carbon in their soils, how do we also make sure that it's good for their bottom lines, that it helps build resilience, it helps them adapt to the impacts of climate change, and even potentially helps them access new markets. And I think that's just one um, example of the really economic opportunity around each of the carbon removal solutions, which is why I think we get so excited about the fact that there are so many cross-sector solutions for carbon removal. So in our report, I think we really place a big emphasis both on environmental justice and on the labor considerations around these solutions and want the administration to take that lens with every policy and every regulation that they implement to make sure that we are enhancing the benefits to the greatest amount possible and also making sure that there aren't any harms that frontline and vulnerable communities face. One of the recommendations that we have is that the White House establishes an interagency task force for carbon removal solutions that includes the perspectives of academics, of industry, of environmental justice advocates, and labor. And we think that sort of interagency coordination and conversation is going to be critical to making sure that we can uphold those values. Super, thank you for that. Where does Carbon 180 stand on the need for carbon pricing? We think that carbon pricing can be a really, you know, critical lever to reducing carbon emissions. But at the same time, I think our transition book really focuses on this concept of industrial policy and thinking about how do we use a suite of policies from R&D funding to deployment incentives to regulations to help build industries. I think particularly for carbon removal, because it is such a nascent field, there are, these technologies are often too early to really participate in carbon pricing or cap and trade schemes. So we think it's just important to diversify the types of policies that we pursue, knowing that in the past we've seen a lot of success with the renewable energy industry following you know, similar paths of industrial policy, which is why we focus on it in this report. What makes you optimistic about the potential for at least some of these policies to become real? There's just so much momentum that has happened over the past five years that has really solidified carbon removal as a central tenet of climate action. We see that in the corporate space as more and more companies are embedding carbon removal in their corporate sustainability goals. Um, we talked about already the momentum that's been happening in Congress. And really, even in this administration, we've seen some early signals that they will be prioritizing carbon removal in their broader climate action. So we saw uh, regenerative agriculture, um, forestry, and carbon capture included in the Biden campaign documents. Um, on the transition website, we've already seen a call out to negative emissions technologies. These technologies were also included in the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force documents. And so we're seeing this continued inclusion of carbon removal in these sort of early documents, which, you know, may just seem like pen on paper, but it's actually something that's never been done before. This has never been included in any Democratic primary candidate or Democratic candidate or Republican candidates platforms. And so I think those early signals make it make us really optimistic that 
we'll see some of these priorities included in the next administration. Great. One final question. Just any last thoughts? Anything else you'd like to really emphasize for the GreenViz 350 audience, a call to action perhaps? Any final thoughts? I mean, I would encourage everyone to, to take a look at the transition book. And if they're interested in learning more about carbon removal, Carbon 180 has a weekly newsletter called The Carbon Copy that shares all of the progress, all of the news that you need to know around carbon removal solutions. And I think I would just stress that, you know, this is a central part of our climate action. It's something that we need in addition to drastic emissions reductions. And we're really excited to um, hopefully see some of these priorities included in the next administration. Great, Gianna, thanks for joining us. And you can find the transition book and some of the other resources that she just mentioned on carbon180.org. Go find their website. You've just heard from Gianna Amador, the co-founder and managing director of Carbon 180. We're going to continue looking ahead to President Biden and the clean economy. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to food and carbon analyst Jim Giles at GreenBiz about sustainable food systems. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Golden, Senior Energy Analyst and Verge Energy Chair at GreenBiz. Hey, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me, Joel. Great to have you. It's I know that you've been excited about uh, the incoming administration and looking at this through the lens of accelerating the deployment of clean energy. Talk a little bit about what you see and what you're most excited about in terms of how the Biden administration can, well, you tell me, change the game? Yeah, well, of course, there's a little bit of an asterisk around what's possible as we're still waiting for what happens in Georgia. So what I've really been looking at recently is what Biden will be able to do regardless of whatever happens in Georgia. So one of the things I've been tracking is the way that the Biden administration can influence financial markets to orient more towards clean energy deployment. One of the things that I've heard climate activists be very excited about is around the selection of Janet Yellen for the Treasury Secretary. And she's really sounded off in the past the need to address climate change. What's interesting about that is she's able to make climate risk a factor for the Federal Reserve generally. And that means that climate can be taken into consideration for the Biden administration when we're talking about taxes and regulation and budget policies. And in a similar vein, I've also been hearing some excitement around uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, which I always associate with being the organization that started the Consumer Protection Bureau in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. And it was really about trying to make sure that we're not making risky decisions that could be impacting consumers. And one thing I've heard people talk about is the idea of this act being deployed in order to make sure we are not becoming more locked into um, emissions, fossil fuel infrastructure, and you know, really be changing the way we think about um, infrastructure, not only for as a something that's accelerating climate chaos, but also something that could potentially be a stranded asset if we then start to adopt these bullish policies. So in between these two things, there's a lot of financial tools to be looking at dirty energy infrastructure through a different lens and through that would be making clean energy more attractive across the board. 
So that's uh, the financial markets piece of this. But what about the government's ability uh, to jumpstart markets for clean energy, even for its own use? Yeah, that's a big one. So it's where we are unsure exactly what they're going to be able to do in other sectors, but the government itself has such tremendous buying power and that can do a lot for shifting clean energy and really moving towards cleaner supply chains. So for First off, the federal government in the past, when they've been procuring clean energy, they've been using renewable energy credits, which doesn't ensure additionality, meaning that they're buying the credits for clean energy, for the, the environmental credits for clean energy, but they aren't necessarily expanding the amount amount of renewables on the grid. So if the Biden administration really takes a procurement strategy that um, that prioritizes clean energy, we could have, you know, in the, in the neighborhood of five gigawatts of new clean energy just to fit the government's needs for electricity. And that could do a lot for continuing to grow the deployment of clean technologies and to work in more use cases. And likewise, the government is responsible for a tremendous amount of square feet of buildings. So the General Service Administration owns and leases about 380 million square feet of buildings, which is 9,600 buildings and more than 2,000 communities across the country. So if they start to really transition to smart technologies and efficient technologies, then that could do a lot for deploying smart technologies across the board and really bringing the cost down. So this could mean a lot when we're talking about the electrification of buildings and some of the technologies that are out there right now are at a higher price point. And this could do a ton for really accelerating those markets. Wow, that's a lot of plugs and, and light switches and air conditioners uh, to, to fiddle with and to make more efficient and, and running off of clean power. But I imagine the big stick, if you will, uh, is really whatever the stimulus comes out of both the administration and the new Congress. That feels like a huge tool for deploying clean energy. Absolutely. And one thing that really heartens me about the Biden administration is it sounds like they're really taking the systems approach to these colliding crises that Biden talked about, um, you know, right before getting elected and then in his acceptance speech around having climate, then the economic fallout of the pandemic, and then the pandemic itself, of course, and racial uh, justice across the country. And so in wanting to address these different challenges in tandem, there's this opportunity to be looking at a clean energy transition and climate concerns across everything that the government does. And truly the stimulus that's going to be coming out of um, the Biden administration should be like a once in a lifetime opportunity to really shift towards a clean economy if they're prioritizing infrastructure and, and fostering clean energy and innovations that are will really help us decarbonize. And that's also going to create a lot of jobs. And I think that that's going to have uh, a huge impact in helping, of course, uplift people that currently don't have jobs, but also helping people in communities across the nation to understand how clean energy, energy efficiency is really something that is jobs rich and is helping uplift families everywhere. And within that, um, Biden outlined some 
some desires around industrial policy and manufacturing. So there's also a lot of great opportunities as we clean up, uh, gear up clean energy to be creating good manufacturing jobs, which I think will be really valuable for the Rust Belt. So before I let you go, is there a first thing that we should be watching for, a thing to, that might happen in, let's say, the first 30 days, let alone the first 100, that would tell us that, yes, Biden is really on the case in all the ways that you hoped he would be? You know, it's a really good question. And one thing I am looking at right now is who he's actually going to be selecting for his climate task force. I mean, the fact that he's created a climate task force is a huge deal. And that's something we'll know about before the actual transition. And per what I was just saying with the systems approach, I'll be interested to see how Biden and um, how Biden starts to embed climate people in these uh, different agencies across the board. So that's what I'd be looking for immediately is how is he starting to look at climate as a lens for all of these other things that he's working in? And how serious are the people that he's really putting in in these climate positions? There's this tension around whether whether climate leaders are doing what's politically feasible or what scientists say need to happen right now, and this, and which side of the fence his selections fall on, I think will mean a lot for the way the government takes on climate change and deployment of clean energy. Lots to keep track of, and we'll be checking back with you from time to time throughout the year, or the years, really. Sarah Golden is Senior Energy Analyst and Verge Chair at GreenBiz Group. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, Joel. Tomorrow, December 5th, is World Soil Day. And with that in mind, our friends at the Textile Exchange launched a new tool to help the fashion and textile industry take urgent action on biodiversity. The Biodiversity Benchmark, as it's called, will enable companies to understand their impacts and dependencies on nature and their material sourcing strategies and chart a pathway to delivering positive biodiversity results and benchmark their progress along the way. Joining me now to talk about it are Liesl Trescott, European and Materials Strategy Director at the Textile Exchange, and Dr. Helen Crowley, a research fellow and advisor on resilient supply chains at Conservation International on leave from the French luxury company Caring. Greetings to you both. Hi, Joel. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Hi, Joel. Nice to be here. So Helen, let's start with you. Why was a tool like this needed in the first place? Um, okay, so we're in this crisis, the nature crisis, as well as the climate crisis. We've got, um, we've got to really deal with that in the next decade. We depend on nature, living nature, biodiversity for everything uh, at a societal level as well as a business level. And there's a lot, of, a lot of recent data that shows how important biodiversity is to functional business and particularly our sector the textile and apparel sector that's very reliant on the services that nature provides whether it's soil and soil fertility or whether it's uh, the, the animals that we get our fibers from so um, we we need to make sure that nature thrives and we need to sort of turn turn this crisis around into into sort of a restorative agenda where we can actually start 
fixing some of the problems with nature that we've created over the last several decades. But to do that requires sort of focused collective action because there's a lot of things out there. You know, biodiversity is, is all around us. Which bit do you focus on? Which is important to you as a business? And within the fashion sector, there are different types of companies. So how do they decide what, where to prioritise, what to do um, to really start sort of making a difference and having a positive impact? So this is the first step towards doing that is sort of rallying around what's important for the sake, what parts of biodiversity are important and what should we be thinking about? What should we be planning for? What should we be doing? And then how do we hold ourselves accountable for making progress? So it's a really terrific timing for something like this to come out. We need it at the beginning of this Great. decade. Well, it sounds like a lot of work. So Lisa, I'll talk a little, a little bit about how this uh, benchmark a tool will work. What, what, how will companies mm. actually interface with it? Yeah, no, thanks, Joe. I mean, we're just extremely lucky to be working with somebody like Helen to make sure we we take this in the right direction. So at Textile Exchange, we've been running a benchmarking program for companies for a couple for about five years now. It's a it's a tool that we use to bring companies onto a same path and to track their progress towards accelerating their use of what we call preferred materials. And we've been working really hard with some dedicated companies, over 200 companies now, on being able to account for the volumes of materials they're using, set targets to increase and accelerate their use of preferred materials. And now we're at a point where we need to understand in greater depth and greater sophistication on how that connects back to a geospatial or a, a landscape setting. So, yeah, so marrying that with this tool that will help companies see what that pathway is and, you know, and then sort of uh, come together to, to learn. And that's the whole point, really, of the benchmarking program. Yes, it's to measure progress, but ultimately it's about learning from each other, finding out where the opportunities to improve are and how we can come together and, and move faster together. And we've you know, been really fortunate to work, as I said, with Helen and also the biodiversity consultancy. We realized pretty quickly that as an organization with quite a lot of experience in benchmarking and of course fibers and materials, we don't have the expertise to really understand the, 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 the need and the, the, the process around understanding and, and incorporating and embedding biodiversity. So that's, that's where we came together with, with experts to help us do that. You know, it strikes me that uh, this is obviously a worthy and, and critical goal, but it's also a, a, a sort of vague and topic in terms of how do you actually measure progress? Helen, I'm wondering, you know, talk a little bit about what are the metrics and also what are the timescales? I know it can take years, if not decades, to create, uh, regenerate topsoil, for example. But, but how does a company uh, measure progress against an, a goal that it's set? No, it's a really good question. And I think it's, it's, it's important that we actually start really focusing on outcomes as well as practices. So up until now, we've done a lot of our certifications and so on have been on. You, you say, I'm doing this practice to to get to an outcome, but you're not necessarily measuring the outcome. But when it comes to biodiversity, you do want to start seeing whether you're actually having the right impact that you want to have. 
Uh, I think what has happened in the last five, ten years, particularly even the last three years, is an incredible explosion of of data and availability of methodologies, approaches, satellite imagery, analytical power in the conservation and academic community mostly, but now starting to move to be, you know, providing these tools for business where you can actually figure out what's happening in a square kilometer on the Earth's surface in terms of species, what species should be there, what species aren't there, what's happening in terms of deforestation, um, what's happening in terms of land, land, land use change, what's happening in terms of soil degradation. The data is there. We're not short, we're not short of data. So now we've got to sort of help companies channel their attention and their focus to understanding the sort of targets that they need to be thinking about and then help them measure that over time and show here's what you're going to do, here are the important things you need to do to avoid your impacts on biodiversity, to reduce your impacts, but then also how you can restore restore habitats, restore um, biodiversity in key areas. And we have the data and methodology. It's, it's nascent in the sense that it's not yet in sort of decision-ready, appropriate uh, uh, packages for companies, but we're getting there very fast. And in fact, with the Fashion Pact, the group of companies that signed up to the Fashion Pact, we're working on a program of work with them, with Textile Exchange and many other experts for two years to help them actually put this action into place, set the targets and start acting in their supply chain and start measuring change over time. Well, uh, that gets to, to my last question, Liesl, that uh, you talk, Helen talked about Fashion Pack, but it's a, a, a small, relatively small group of companies compared to the overall market of textiles and apparel. How do we know that there's a market for this tool, that companies, enough companies want to use this to actually make a difference? Yeah, I, and I think as you know, as Helen alluded to as well, there, there there is a surge of interest in this topic, and I think, you know, part of it is an emotional connection with the world we live in and the world we want our children to to grow up in, and that connection to nature. And I think, once again, just drawing on the COVID situation, you know, I think being able to connect with nature when we can't connect socially has has been, you know, there is there is an emotional connection there, and I. I personally think there is something about that that is galvanizing people to act. Um, and I also see, you know, we're very, we're in very close contact with the Fashion Pact. We're in close contact with the Science-Based Targets for Nature group. And, you know, many of our members, our almost 500 companies that are, are members of Textile Exchange, are, are really eager to learn from the experts that Helen mentioned. And, and we've... We've got a, a lovely community of practice coming together for that sharing and bridging of where all that academic research is and the data and how it connects to companies large and small and how they can get involved. And I think nobody's starting from scratch. And I think that's the that's really helpful when we're thinking about the enormousness of this task. And that's one of the roles that the benchmark will provide is how to lead people in that direction and and. and find out where the expertise is to, to help us along the way. Well, the task is indeed enormous, and uh, but hopefully this tool will help us get further faster. Liesl Truscott is the European and Material Strategy Director at the Textile Exchange. Dr. Helen Crowley is a research fellow and advisor on resilient supply chains at Conservation International. We're talking about the biodiversity benchmark. You can learn more about it in the article we ran earlier this week. 
on GreenBiz. Thanks to you both. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much, Joe. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Sabs Katz, co-founder and director of communications at Intersectional Environmentalist, an organization that's committed to creating space for underamplified voices within the environmental movement. We chatted about a recent partnership between the organization and Tazo, in which the tea company is acting on its desire to support environmental justice initiatives by helping fund IE's internship program. IE plans to continue growing as an organization, and this is one way that it has been able to ensure that everyone on its team gets paid. Its first cohort of interns has already gotten started. During our conversation, Sabs and I also discussed why environmentalism needs to include an intersectional framework and what the organization has been up to since its founding this past June. Here's an excerpt of our conversation, which you can read in full on greenbiz.com. It starts with Sabs answering my question about how other companies can partner with intersectional environmentalists. We do partner um, very thoughtfully with uh, certain businesses. For example, today we're doing a series of cookouts with Impossible Foods. So we do a lot of um, social media partnerships. Um, We've partnered with Allbirds, um, which is a sustainable footwear company, and they created a bunch of posters that were put up in New York City. They were put up in L.A. and San Francisco um, in partnership with IE. So we are very open to doing partnerships um, in many different ways. That being said, we want to be very thoughtful um, and considerate and develop relationships with these businesses rather than having it be a one-off thing because we're really focused on that community-building aspect. So... um, Yeah, I would say there are definitely other ways to partner with us, not just within our um, sort of that accountability program respect. Um, So 2020 is almost over. It's been an interesting year. (laughs) Um, And IE was started in this year. I'm curious, as we go into 2021, um, what are some of IE's hopes about the impact that you have um, on the environmentalism movement? So we... I mean, I'll split, I'll split it up into two different answers. So I guess the first one, what are our hopes? Um, our hope is really to bring intersectional environmentalism to the mainstream environmental movement and have that be the focus of every future uh, environmental conversation. We want to really have the conversations of how are people being impacted and who are the folks who are most impacted by the negative aspects of the climate crisis. We can no longer continue to ignore um, the ways that BIPOC communities are being disproportionately impacted. We're already seeing um, climate refugees, folks who are no longer able to live within their communities or within their countries because it's, you know, the weather, it's too hot to live there, or the conditions, the air conditions, the air pollution conditions make it no longer a viable community. We really want folks to, to not shy away from, from these conversations. When we look at a lot of um, environmental organizations, a lot of environmental nonprofits, the largest ones are ones that focus on conservation, they focus on nature, they focus on animals, all of which are absolutely wonderful. But when we look at how often environmental justice um, organizations are, are funded, 
the amount of money that is that goes to funding these companies and these initiatives is minuscule compared to, you know, something like the World Wildlife Fund or the Nature Conservancy, which not to disparage those those organizations whatsoever. But I think it reflects, um, you know, a larger issue and that why are we not funding this research? Why are we not funding these initiatives? And so we're really hoping to shift that conversation in many ways. We've already heard stories of, um, you know, students in universities who are asking their schools to implement intersectional environmentalist courses into their coursework and like make those required courses for any environmental um, environmental majors. So those are some of the more, I guess, that would be one of more the more grassroots initiatives that we hope to see and we hope to continue seeing. Um, and then in terms of like IE as a business, we are looking to um, kind of expand a little bit. We Right now we are a, a for-profit and we very consciously decided to become a for-profit because we wanted to show that you can be a mission-driven organization and still make money and you can still pay people fair wages. But one of our goals for 2021 is to kind of create a nonprofit arm um, so that we can that area can focus on doing a lot more of the grassroots work, whether that's through our mentorship program, which we're still continuing to flesh out um, or, you know, funding grants for sustainability or envir intersectional environmentalist organizations. Um, so we're fleshing out that sort of arm in 2021. We're also um, hoping to create a media house, almost like Jubilee, with the, with the goal of really highlighting a lot of these stories of environmental injustice and really kind of bring it to the forefront so that people can no longer ignore uh, these conversations. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We always love your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. With Sustainability Cloud, you can track, analyze, and report environmental data to take climate action. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability. This episode is sponsored by Shell. There is an urgent need to tackle climate change, and we are determined to play our part. Learn more about Shell's climate ambition at shell.us forward slash net zero ambition.